welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing uh, fine. Yeah. Uh, we have... Uh, <laughs> look, there are things I'm happy about. There are things I'm not happy sure. about going on in the world. Yeah. Um, but we have uh, uh, we have a fun, I think, hopefully a fun episode today. I think um, so. I'm still a little curious about what the episode is going to look like. It's a little oh, yeah, it's a little our, nebulous in my mind right our now. Our guest is going to be in the driver's seat, but not until he's introduced. For Correct. now, you and I remain in the co-driver's seat. Indeed. Like, uh, like uh, aircraft pilots, like we're sharing. Sure. You know, we you both got to turn our keys. I know that doesn't actually apply. <laughs> that's more of a nuclear <laughs> I submarine. I was going to say, still. you have the con, I have the con, but that's also a nuclear submarine. It seems like you and I know a lot more about <laughs> nuclear submarines than airplanes. Uh, there's more interesting movies about nuclear submarines than airplanes, in my opinion. Uh, except, yep. you know, I do know that obviously autopilot is a big inflatable uh, guy with a smile on his face. <laughs> That's all I know about airplanes. Uh, yeah. Um, I do love submarine movies, but that's not, we're, we're not here to talk about submarine movies. Can uh, we? Can we <laughs> switch? Suddenly? We're here to talk about other things, but first I want to open some mail from a oh, listener. Sure. I'm guessing from a listener. It just, it does not have an, a return address on it, which oh, boy. Uh, is a risk, but it has a Canadian post, uh, postage stamp. Oh, you know what? I'm not interested. Oh, I'm, uh, what's the Canadian version of an Anglophile? Like a Canuckophile? Uh, I don't, do they like being called Canucks? I mean, it's the name of one of their hockey teams. I oh, think. then they're probably fine with it. Yeah. So I think I'm a Canuckophile. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so here, I guess here. I am too. I think most, like a lot of com- a lot of my favorite comedians oh. and filmmakers are uh, Canadian. So, all right, what do we got here, David? Literally, I don't know <laughs> who this is from. It's for me, not for you. Oh, okay. It says "Fine and Thirty Nine, Happy Birthday, David." Oh, that's. But nice. it was addressed to Battleship Retention. Yeah. Um. Um. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out if this is. Someone, I'm assuming it's someone we know. Stands but, to uh, reason. But what he sent, I'm super excited about, and I might let you and the guest have some. Okay. Uh, Smarties, not the bullshit, like, right. trash-bound candy that Americans <laughs> have. <laughs> I mean, Smarties in America, which is an entirely different brand, different kind of candy, but they're, like... They're literally a joke. Like, Smarties are yeah. often a punchline about bad candies or worthless candies that you don't want. Cheap they're candies. Little... They're delicious. No, they're not. I guess they're just, you know what? Admittedly, they haven't had them in a while. Yeah, they're just chalky, just sugar, right? Tart sugar, which yeah, I guess yeah. is a lot of, a lot of candy is just sugar. Yeah. And that tends to be the candy that I don't like, mm-hmm. I guess. I'm more, are you more of a fruity candy guy or a chocolate candy guy very much chocolate me too um me too. I'm, I'm not opposed to uh, fruit flavored candy but for the most part if it's between the two it's not even a question yeah yeah i rarely go for a fruit flavored candy i mean i get the appeal of like the pink starburst that everyone loves so much i get sure, it Sure. yeah but uh, yeah like you said if i'm in a situation like the old adakoff screening room it, yeah uh, when you've got a bowl of like Hershey's minis or like some single starburst, like I'm leaving those starburst in the moon behind. Yeah. I'm taking four Mr. Good bars is what I'm taking. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And like, and, and like Skittles, like if there's a bowl of Skittles and a bowl of M&Ms, the bowl of M&Ms will be empty. Yeah. The bowl of Skittles, there might be like a quarter of them gone before I'm like, okay, I think I've had enough. Uh, Skittles. I'm not normally a candy talk guy, but I could talk about candy. I guess it's the season. It's Halloween season. Sure. It's a candy season. Like uh, I loved Skittles as a kid. Now I feel like 
M and M's I can eat by the handful. Skittles, mm-hmm. a few at a time. Sure, it's 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 a little much for me. Yeah, I'm gonna open these motherfucking Smarties. Okay, um, for our um, Canadian listener to enjoy. Yeah, I don't me. like the mystery part of this. I, I listener, uh, identify do yourself, you, please. Do you recognize that there's a little like signature? Yeah. Oh wow, these are so good. Yeah, they're kind of yeah, like I can't I can't place it. The the yeah. I'm trying to think here. of like you the initials here. I'm good, thank you. You want some of these? I'm okay. good. All right. No, I'm going to eat these. They're like regular M&Ms but better. Oh, okay. Yeah, I may try some later. Cuz yeah, there's a little bit more in terms of like a little bigger, which mm-hmm. means you get more chocolate, I guess. I will say the color of the candy shell is not ap- is not appetizing. Jesus fuck. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I spill I spilled some smarties. Oh boy. Oh, a nice cathartic laugh from me. Thank you. Um, I really appreciated that. That's exactly what I needed. Just that, just that under the breath <laughs> profanity. Oh, it's a good way to make me laugh, David. Um, All right, well, there's at least one smarty on your floor. Okay, well, we'll we'll figure it out. And you, until very recently, had a dog about mm-hmm. regularly. Yeah, he's he's not about anymore. Okay, because chocolate's bad for dogs. I don't know if you knew that. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, but, uh, careful, careful. You don't want another horrible mishap. Yeah, this was, <laughs> this is a curse. No, was, I can't seem to move without dropping Smarties. Boy, oh boy. But I'm so glad that I've been, like, um, inducted into the Smarty Club. You know? Sure. I, I have to, it's one more thing I can cross off my list of, like, Canadian foods. What are some of the other Canadian foods? I I don't think I can place. I don't think I can place any. Well, I've had Tim Hortons okay. many times. Okay. I would say I've been to Canada twice, mm-hmm. both times for five days at a time. So okay. I would estimate that I've been to Tim Hortons ten times. <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, so I've been to Tim Hortons. I've been to. Canadian A and W, which is the same logo and same general concept mm-hmm. as American A and W, but it's like run and operated differently. And like a, Canadians are very like proud of the like the, it's it's considered hmm. like a better burger. So I, I have had an A and W burger in Toronto. Is it just is it better? Uh, it is better. Here's I, I kind of fucked up. Okay, because I decided to do two things at once. Which mm-hmm. was, I decided, you need a variable and a constant. David. I know. I was going to try. I was like, I'm going to have my first ever A&W burger in Canada. This is so exciting. I just watched Jojo Rabbit. It sucked. This will cheer me up. Um, uh, this was at TIFF 2019, if you can't place that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also have a thing that I do, because I don't like pickles. But sure. I, I don't like that I don't like pickles. So every few years, I will try a burger with pickles on it again, just to see if I still don't like pickles. And so I did... I made the mistake of being like, this is a good burger, but I should have gotten without pickles. Turns out I still don't like pickles. Now, David, I'm torn between keeping our guests silent, which I love doing, Mm -hmm. and moving on with the topic. But now I'm really curious, because obviously my food palate is limited to the point of being laughable. Um, Right. But 
you're somebody who tries a lot of th- tries a lot of things. At this point, it feels like not that you're going to get locked into anything, but this idea is just like. I think it's safe to say you don't like pickles. I like, guess, are but, you comfortable? But the thing like, is, I was, you're almost 40. Like, I, I guess don't that's think it, true. I don't think it's going to change. I guess that's true, but I hear you can, like, uh, like uh, uh, as a kid, I mean, I, I've never, as a kid, I was not allergic to poison ivy. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, I'm still not. I'm, I have that rare, like, thing. But yeah. I'm not going to try because I know you can, you can oh, become okay. allergic to poison ivy as you get older. All right. So, like, as a kid, it was, like, a blessing for me that, like, yeah. uh, you know, uh, a ball would go. You know, we'd play in the park. A ball would go into the woods, and, like, three of us would go in to get it, and I'd be yeah. the only one a few days later that wasn't itching. It happened multiple mm. times with cousins or Little League teammates. You guys got to stop going to the woods. Yeah. Uh, no, the woods are great. <laughs> <laughs> but if you know the woods have poison ivy. I'd say it's worth the risk. All right. Um, so I guess I, – but I, I, the thing is, I was a picky eater as a kid. Mm-hmm. And now – I'm generally not, yeah. but there are still a handful of things that I don't like, and I don't I don't like that I don't like anything, right? Except for I think the one thing that I'm good on I've never tried cottage cheese in my entire life, and I don't think I want to. I it I seem, don't blame you. It seems gross, yeah. so I don't think, and I don't seem to be missing out on that much. You know, it's yeah. not like I'm constantly finding myself at restaurants having to say, hold the cottage cheese, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, so I I think I'm good on cottage cheese, but yeah, other things like eggplant. And um, olives. Sure. Um, I will try every once in a while. Eggplant, it's purely a texture thing because I like baba ganoush, which is mm-hmm. like pureed up eggplant. So I clearly like the taste of eggplant. It's mm. just like it's too slimy. Oh, yes. Uh, I have tried various things, especially now that we're preparing food for the kids. Mm. Uh, and we've so like various fruits and stuff that I have not tried either at all or in a long time. I will try. And uh, sure enough, yes, I'm, I was correct that I still don't like most of them. Um, and yeah. Oh, eggplant. Thumbs down. On that texture. I don't get yeah, it. I'm s- I'm shocked that anybody kept eating it after they tried it the first time. I know, but, like, like Natalie loves it, especially because, like, it's often at certain restaurants, because Natalie's a vegetarian, mm. they're all, eggplant is a regular, like... Substitute? Or just, like, a dish. Like, if you're at an Italian restaurant, you get an eggplant parmesan that's, mm. like, not going to have meat in it. Yes. What. So, yeah, um, uh, Natalie eats a lot of, a lot of eggplant, and... Uh, I guess she gets it all to herself. Wouldn't it be kind of amazing if, like, at age 75, it it, it flipped and you yeah. love pickles at that point? Yeah, it could happen. Because I feel like, I also feel like I'm wrong for not liking pickles because I like other things that are pickled. It's just sure. pickled cucumbers that I don't like. I like pickled beets, pickled onions. I like all these things. Yeah. Um, I like the little pickled, like, radishes you get with, like, Mediterranean food sometimes. Um, eh, in moderation, I like those. But still... I feel like I'm going to like pickles someday. But the point is, Smarties, I can cross off the list. Right. Um, next up, I don't know. I'm trying to think of, an, uh, of a Canadian chain that I don't... Uh, Boston Pizza? I've never had Boston Pizza. I don't think it's very good. Doesn't sound good. <laughs> I don't think Canadians are like, <laughs> proud of Boston Pizza. It's just like you see it on the like the yeah. boards when you're watching a fucking like, uh, Calgary Flames game or whatever. It's like us with Jack in the Box. It's something we all kind of tolerate, <laughs> but uh, I don't think anybody would stand I, by it. I loved Jack in the Box as a, as a young person mm. because it's like... Uh, the burgers like weighed two pounds. <laughs> like, so sure, like, yes, they'll get you with quantity. Yeah. All right. Uh, but we have uh, an episode to get to. But first, I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day. Uh, today, I was listening to a new, um, uh, you know, I, 
California Pride, I was listening to a uh, California atmospheric folk black metal project called Feral Season. They're from they're from Sacramento, uh, and they're 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 very good. Their album is called Rotting Body in the Range of Light. Uh, which is a good black metal album name. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not a good in my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Tyler? Yes? Let's get into it, shall we? Let's introduce our guest. Uh, I'm going to need some more smarts while you do that. I suppose so. Our guest is, look, he's a fan favorite. Uh, he's a one half of the host favorite. Um, <laughs> I'll let listeners figure out which one. It's David. Uh, but yeah, and he is our editor at large. It is the one, the only, thankfully, Scott and I. Uh, I was also anti-pickle for a long time. Um, but you switched. I did switch. Okay. The Cubano brought me over. Do you not enjoy a Cubano? I've had a Cubano without pickles, but I feel like that's not a real Cubano. I feel like it's not a real Cubano either. So I guess I would say no, I have not had one. Uh, I recommend it. It brought me around. Now, pickle comes into my life. I'm like, all right. Maybe not my favorite, but uh, much more tolerable. I think that's what, um, because I also didn't like uh, jalapenos as a kid. And I think the the banh mi sandwich is what... um, Sold me the jalapenos, and now I'm a jalapeno nut. I can still only do the jalapenos on the bon mi. But okay, you know, I, everything. I know we've already done an episode about like food movies, but with Carl Hess. Uh, yes, that's right. That's right. Um, and I'll say this: the movie Chef, I think, is an imperfect movie. There's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff about it, but it made those sandwiches. Look it made those good. sandwiches look so good. And that's why I'm, I tried them because I'm movie. watching that movie. I'm just like. Oh, I wish I weren't me. Could I just take a break <laughs> from being me for, well, frankly, forever would be great. But uh, so I could actually enjoy these foods. Have you tried the Cubano? Uh, because I feel know, like it's within your range. It is. Sandwich, yeah. Here's the thing. Yeah. It is. But th- things would have to be removed for me to enjoy it. And it sounds to me like the things yeah. I, would, I would remove would disqualify. Uh, disqualify so what would you being, remove? Uh, pickles, first off. Yeah, yeah. That's out. That's a problem. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, what else is on there? Like a cheese and a ham and a mustard. And that's all I know for sure. I... I don't usually like... I can I can live with cheese on a, on a sandwich. Uh, and then like... Mustard, I enjoy, I'm not opposed to mustard as long as it's not too much or too sure, sure. Uh, overwhelming. Sometimes it can be too much on the Cubano. Uh, so yeah, I'm 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 willing to try it, get, but get those pickles off of there. But I guess that just means uh, yeah, wouldn't really count. Yeah. Have you been to uh, Versailles? That's the 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 big Cuban restaurant here in Los Angeles. Well, Versailles. I've been to El Cochinito, which is the was once voted the world's best Cubano. Uh, and that's here in Los Angeles? Yeah. Oh, in okay. uh, Silver Lake, I want to say. Okay. I've been, well, I've been to Versailles, which I can't remember exactly what part of town that's in. Yeah. I've been to, uh, in your neck of the woods, uh, La Floridita. I don't know if you know that place. That is like 
a block away from me and I still haven't been. Yeah, it's 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 really good because the um, when I used to go to the uh, Association of Moving Image Archivists Real Thing Symposium, which was at the oh, Academy, sure. like literally. Yeah. So the Floridita was like everyone would be like load up on like mojitos yeah. and stuff and then go watch a there's new, a lot of really good looking restaurants right. in that plaza but because it's a block away from me i'm like oh do it later it's right there do it's it anytime. the, the same good. plaza as uh doomies yep the, still uh, in there the uh, uh vegetarian or i guess vegan like soul food place yeah that's one of the reasons I haven't been there. <laughs> um, uh, it's pretty good. Uh, anyway, um, what were we talking about that was important? Oh, Versailles, the restaurant. That's yeah. what was important <laughs> was that um, one time Natalie and I were there and the couple, I mean, the two, I don't want to say couple because I don't think they were together. The two people okay. at the table next to us was an older man and a much younger woman. And he, the older man was into he was kind of very much like Steve Buscemi in Ghost World was into like this old this old blues <laughs> I thought you were saying he was very into Steve Buscemi in no, Ghost World he was very much like Steve Buscemi in Ghost World he was talking he about old blues and everything else though. <laughs> and he but he was also apparently apparently from what I learned from uh, eavesdropping on this guy's conversation well, is that Matt Dillon is also uh, uh, into this kind of music okay. mm. and this guy it was just a full meal long name drop <laughs> it was just him trying I, I felt like trying to impress this young woman with Matt the stories about how he was friends with Matt Dillon I uh Julie and I were out at a restaurant actually also in Silver Lake a couple weeks a couple months ago at this point um at the table next to us they were having I think like a engagement celebration party and there was a guy I think his girlfriend were there well before the party advanced and they're like chatting up the waiter and he's like oh by the way you know Dax Shepard that's her cousin <laughs> and the waiter could not have been less engaged or impressed by it all but this was of like course. this guy's big move was that this was Dax Shepard's cousin he was sitting with boy that's that is really desperate yeah yeah like especially only... because frankly very good looking woman that should be show off enough out with a good looking woman. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow he has to take it to what he perceives to be this next level, but which surely I cannot feel like be. It, look, nothing against Dak Shepard, no, but as far as his level of celebrity, the only time you name drop Dak Shepard is <laughs> if, if you there. are eating <laughs> with him <laughs> yeah. and yeah. say, Hey, you know, Dak Shepard, that's him. That's him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause you might not recognize him cause he's not uh, that famous. <laughs> boy. Oh boy. Um, so Versailles is at, uh, uh, Venice and motor, uh, oh, sure. near the, near the Sony lot. Yeah. All right. Uh, but we're not here to talk about, uh, Cubanos, although I could, I, we could do a whole food, uh, I mean, episode. it sounds like That's, I'm the only expert around here. So uh, yeah, I guess you are. Um, uh, but let's, why don't you introduce the topic that was your idea? Sure. Um, so this was a topic that I've been noodling around in various forms for the past like 10 years or so. Um, the result of which is not terribly uh, evolved or researched. So it's a perfect battleship retention topic because we can just kind of like muse about it yeah. and uh, come to no conclusion. Feels like an insult. Uh, no, I think it's a compliment. <laughs> like, we can say that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think it's a compliment. Okay. I, I think people by this point are tuning in for that. Right. Uh, so, you know, this is a, a good one for the fans. For the listeners. Tuning in for me trying to list <laughs> Canadian chain restaurants. That's not what they're... I, I mean, I guess for. also by this point in the show, they I, know they're in for that, too. Yeah, I would say at this point, they are tuning in just as much yeah. for you spilling those Smarties <laughs> and swearing into the mic as anything movie-related we might say. Undoubtedly. Um, so, yeah, like... Uh, 
I guess it was more like nine years ago, because I was reading a review that Glenn Kenny wrote about uh, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln, in which he referred to it as Steven Spielberg, Tony Kushner's, and Daniel Day-Lewis's Lincoln. And I was like, well, that's interesting. That was an interesting authorial hmm. assignment to it. Um, and it sort of planted this idea in my head where... So, we're all familiar with auteur theory. We went to film school. We've mm-hmm. been around the block. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of been contorted in the years since to be like reading biographical information into the filmmakers or reading production info into the filmmakers. But at the start of it, it really was just about that these French dudes were getting a certain sensation from movies that was distinct from other movies, and they're trying to identify where that came from. Mm. Um, And since movies are sort of living art pieces. They're not like live dance or live theater or something, but for all the thinking out and planning goes into them, you're still trying to capture something on set that you hope will translate into art in some way. And actors are, of course, a huge uh, component of making that art, of making the images that we see on screen. And for however much work the director can put into the movie, they can't decide, you know, a glance that an actor will give, a certain random gesture they'll give that might make the movie or sell the audience on it or create some indelible screen moment. So I was interested in doing an episode on actors as auteurs and where we might see that emerge, what it might mean, how that gets identified, that sort of thing. That's the basic idea. It's, it's such a fascinating idea. And I remember when you brought it up to David and I, we were immediately like, uh, yes, yes, yeah. this is a, something to talk about because it is a little bit, it is a vibe. It's a feeling. Um, and you can, and certainly there are things you can point to very specifically with certain actors as far as like, well, they didn't write or direct this thing. So really, I guess it's just about them choosing certain roles, but then also what they do with, with those roles. And, and like the first place my mind goes, and I've said it on the show before, uh, Edward Norton. Okay. Whose, whose obsession with duality <laughs> sure. is like very easy to chart, whether it be, I mean, from his early career with like Primal Fear and Fight Club, he has played, uh, of course he was going to play the Incredible Hulk eventually. Sure. Uh, he played Twins in Leaves of Grass. Uh, and then I, the and I. The score has. The uh, score, yes, thank you. Yeah. So like, there's just something about like, he is just fascinated and maybe it's the opportunity to get to play two different personas in one movie, whatever it is. Yeah. Maybe it's, maybe it's just a show off. <laughs> Possibly. I mean, there's a lot just, of that. You guys w- look at this and it's like, I'm not getting the accolades I want. Okay. What's the next one? Um, like that's the first place I, my mind goes is just like, there's just, you know, I feel like anytime with the auteur theory, you can look at somebody's work and you can either take what you know about them outside the film and read into it. Or you can look at the, the series of films and be like, okay, now what can I tell about the director from this? Uh, and so like somebody like, you know, I know we don't like to talk about, but somebody like Roman Polanski, even if you didn't know about anything outside of his, you know, of his life, you can watch his movies and be like, okay, he is fascinated with, uh, or, or preoccupied with whatever you want to say with, being alone, being oppressed, paranoia, all of these things. Uh, uh, and, uh, and then, and then like, okay, fair enough. Um, and so somebody like in, like an Edward Norton, like when you, when you look at, so it's not every role, obviously, but when you look at so many of his roles and this dual role, or even just cause he's not playing Tyler Durden in, Fight Club, except for brief flashes. Brief flashes. He's really just giving one performance there, but and yet duality is still 
a big part of that, a huge part of that film. And so it just makes you wonder like, okay, so I guess this is just kind of as an actor, something he's really fascinated with. And I wonder why. Yeah. I would even go a layer deeper that a lot of his movies are kind of infused with a certain like nervous energy mixed with a tremendous amount of confidence, which yeah, is like completely absolutely. his screen persona. Oh, and I, I would, I would add American history X to this yeah, as well, where he's essentially, hour. yeah, where there's a clear, bef- a very clear before and after. It's not sure. even necessarily an arc. It is, it, it counts as one, but you can definitely mark like this is this, per- this character before this moment of transformation of some kind. And here they are after, um, and yeah, and just what he brings to each role. Uh, I think like his performance in Birdman, a movie that I know a lot of people don't like, but I think he's wonderful. I always in forget it. he's in it. That's yeah. the weird part. <laughs> it's 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 unfortunate because I think he's also he brings that kind of crackling energy. Yeah, and he do, it does feel like there's an, uh, an insecurity that doesn't. Even, it's not even that deep. You can see it there, and yet somehow he's also he just projects like. I feel like I'm in good hands with this guy that is very, very nervous <laughs> yeah, somehow. Absolutely. Um, the other kind of, I thought of some introductory examples that uh, the audience might be familiar with. Um, obviously I think Maria Falconetti in Passion of Joan of Arc um, is a prime example of like an actor completely defining what that movie is <coughs> and like didn't feeling of it, you know, for as much as there's kind of some drier touches of it, what we remember of it comes from her. Mm-hmm. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then like Elliot Gould and the long goodbye, um, you know, it's a Robert Altman movie in a lot of ways, but the whole vibe of that movie is playing off of Gould. The, every second of the movie is responding to what he's doing. But I guess <clears throat> to not that I'm, it's not my job here to be like pushing against, but I guess with the, the Falcon Eddie thing, like Dreyer is still making the choice to frame her the way that she is. And so I feel like a lot of, I've said on this podcast, well, I guess that was actually on the Patreon. I said it's the greatest performance in film history. So I'm not undercutting her at all, but I guess what I'm saying is there, his decisions of how to frame it, like still are the window we're seeing it through. And I think guide uh, drive a lot of the film. So I don't know that I fully agree. I guess I was, but maybe I'm just because I'm coming to this, I like that you had the idea for this episode <laughs> and then we didn't talk about what you meant by it, which I, I, I literally do like that, but I have, I think I'm approaching it with a different point of view where I'm not, I wasn't looking at like single films where like, Oh, the actor is the auteur of this film. I'm like Tyler was, I'm looking at like thinking about careers and thinking sure. about things that you see, um, similar things come up time and time again. Of course in, with Murray Falconetti, uh, it's only the one, you know. Yeah, yeah. Six one half. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a, a different way of looking at film then, because like film is often thought of as a sort of window example of like you're looking at the world from a perspective, but it's also from the people on the other side of the camera projecting something from the sets to the actors, the costumes, the lighting, all that mm-hmm. is feeding into the camera, and you know, it's not the final word on the film, but I, I think it means something. Yeah, and I do feel like there is, you know, when I think of something like Passion of Joan of Arc, like being the auteurist that I am, like, yes, it's Dreyer's film, but it does feel like a collaboration. Uh, Like, he's clearly directing to her performance, and in doing so, elevating the performance with his formalistic decisions, but it's still, there still needs to be a performance there to allow him 
and I, technically he could have done it with any performance, but I do think that like a lesser performance or a less intense one, who knows how he would have shot it. Like maybe he would have felt like I need to prop this up a little bit more if it weren't quite as. Yeah. I couldn't get powerful. as close to an actor who isn't giving as much. Right. Mm. And so I do feel like in this, in a situation like that, like the two are just, they're almost inseparable. Like they're, they're just flowing so naturally into each other that it's, it's still his film, but with a movie like that, it's very easy to say that it's maybe not just as much her film, but she's, you just cannot remove that performance yeah. from that. And I think there are a lot of examples film. like that alongside most great directors' careers. I mean, like, I adore Fellini, but ultimately, where would he be without uh, Mastriani or, um, I can't think of his wife's name now. Um, God, I'm an idiot. Well, anyway, <laughs> uh, the woman who started like Julia of the Spirits. But like, Master Hunter, especially in Eight and a Half, like, he's magnifying Fellini's soul in a way that Fellini couldn't write or direct anybody to do. It's just like he found someone who was compatible with the way he was experiencing the world and was a perfect vessel to express that. And like, you listen to interviews with Master Hunter, and he's like, unintelligible about it. He's not like intellectualizing much of it, but it's just like, they just were totally in sync of the way of seeing the world. I think also more recently, like Michelle Williams and Kelly Reichardt, um, both of whom I think are better together than they ever are apart. Um, and I would include in that, um, certain women. I think the middle section is the strongest section. I know most people go with the third, but the middle section is the one where, um, Michelle Williams is like challenging the material almost. She's adding something there that wasn't on the page, wasn't being directed, whereas everyone else in the movie is kind of like playing to the material. I think I said before on this podcast that when I saw certain women with you, by the yeah. way, um, the middle section was my least favorite. And in the ensuing years, it's the one that I find myself thinking about the most, just not even mm -hmm. having seen the movie in years. I will sometimes just think about, yeah, about that. And I think a lot of those instances where actors are kind of challenging the material are kind of the most interesting in that regard. I, you brought this up on the show recently. So I thought about it. You being Tyler, sorry, the listeners can't see me pointing. Um, it was so very I, accusatory. <laughs> I, I wasn't thinking about it in terms of this episode, but instantly I realized it was perfect. It's Tom Hardy and Venom. Um, mm -hmm. The first Venom movie, the second one, I think, understands what they're trying to do and they like fold it into a larger thing. But the first one, like everything about it is like something for 2003 that's just trying to be like some extreme comic book movie. But Boy, Tom yeah. Hardy is doing something completely weird and unpredictable. Yeah, it's outside and, of any time, yeah. really. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that's an instance where like he's defining the movie because nobody else cares enough to make it something distinct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then it becomes interesting that you're like, huh? he literally has a writing credit on the, yeah. maybe, a st maybe a story credit. I don't yeah, remember exactly on the second one. So it's like, yeah, he really does care enough about this whole thing to start to take a more active role in the creation of the second one. Um, now I know that we, I, th I believe we've done an episode about like actor and director, like pairing. Sure, uh, yeah. so I don't want to, I don't want to lock too much in, yeah, but, but I will say along those lines that, um, when I think of, you know, actors that are, that are themselves like auteurs and they shape the movies. Of course, there's going to be a, a collaborative aspect, but it's hard not to think of Klaus Kinski um, yeah. as someone who, yes, on one hand, like clearly Werner Herzog was like, I need someone who can take the barely veiled insanity of me yeah. and make it as overt as possible. <laughs> uh, and then you get Klaus Kinski, but then you see him in something like Dr. Zhivago, which I've um, not seen. 
Oh, it's it's a supporting role. It's I think it's only in maybe one or two scenes, uh, if that. Might be a Bruce McGill uh, contender. <laughs> very very today, much so. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And then he plays uh, before he would go on to be. Count Orlock, yeah, uh, in the nineteen seventy or seventy one Count Dracula, he plays Renfield, and you know Herzog had nothing to do with that, but uh, plays him as basically mute. Uh, he's mm. not like the crazy raving Renfield that one would expect from a sure, Kinsky. naturally, um, and yet he still has that a very specific kind of intensity, like. Of co- it was only a matter of time before this guy was cast as an obsessed, crazy person, one way or another. <laughs> uh, and so, I think I think there, I think it could be argued that any any actor who is an auteur could probably have been sort of helped early in their career to get to get there. Sure, by a director who really understands who they are and can kind of unlock that. Yeah, I mean Kinski is also a good example because there's no other performer that I know of in a Werner Herzog movie who's giving that same kind of energy. Yeah. Um something just went crashed. Um Yeah. Everything okay? I'm going to I'm going to step yeah, out. Yeah, right, sure. You guys continue. Um yeah, so like the movies that Herzog made with Kinski have a flavor all their own and there's some stuff you can see that has a consistency with Herzog, but there's some that's purely Kinski. There's a lot of elements of that that you really can't assign just to Herzog's genius. Um, yeah, I'm finding this conversation very interesting because it's very much different than where my mind uh, was. It's like, but like the fact that you started with talking about Daniel, Daniel Day Lewis is exactly what I'm talking about. Like, because or what I was thinking about at least, because Daniel Day, Daniel Day Lewis is the, the an actor who, and obviously not every actor can afford to do this. Well, yeah, but he's gotten to a place where, well, now I guess he's retired. But he had gotten to a place where, like, if Daniel Day Lewis was in a movie, it's not because like. He's an actor. He's in movies. And like Gene, I love Gene, I love Gene Hackman, but he right. would just like, he had a, a hole in his schedule. He'd be like, <laughs> I gotta make a movie. If Dan Day Lewis makes a movie, you know that he wants to make yeah. that movie, which makes nine all the more compelling, <laughs> Yeah, which I didn't see. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so, um, yeah, Dan, Dan Day Lewis is more along the lines that I was thinking of another, another person like that, that I think was becoming like that much early in earlier in his early. He was much earlier in his career when he died, sadly, but Chadwick, Chadwick Boseman was, someone oh, that, sure. like, put a lot of thought into like what type of roles he was going to play and what type of roles he was not going to play. Yeah. I mean, I think what Glenn Kenny was getting at with the Lincoln example is that you can see the actors responding to day Lewis, you know, sense in the way they were responding, supposed to be responding to Lincoln within the story, but which comes across in such a natural way that you have to figure on some level. They're just thrilled to be doing a scene with Daniel. Day yeah. Lewis. Like, <laughs> and so like the respect they have for him <laughs> translates to the, the mood of the scene. Yeah. There's a, a reverence yeah. there that people undoubtedly would have had for the president of the United States, but in the world of the, of actors, like, well, here we are. Yeah. Like this is about the same, uh, for most people. Yes. Yeah. And you can't, can't cast that. You can't direct that. You just have to conjure that on set. And that comes about through an actor. Um, and speaking of, of actors who work with Paul Thomas Anderson, I do sure. think that Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah. uh, brought a very specific kind of energy. I mean, he played all different kinds of, of roles, um, and I mean, he, he was a very versatile actor, but he always brought, it could be honestly because of his body type. Like he, yeah. he brings just a real force, uh, of, of nature to whether it be, you know, the character in Charlie Wilson's war or even Capote where he lost, he, he actually lost weight for that role. Um, but there's just like this, 
this quality to him where you're like, this guy is going to be kind of unmovable. Even when he's playing, you know, kind of unstable characters, there's just this quality to them that feels, for lack of a better term, solid. Yeah. Not, not to suggest that he's that he's unable to to change, like his character in, in Boogie Nights, for example. Sure. Um, not that he's he's unable to that he just brings like his his quality from the master to that character, <laughs> but he does. Uh, you just feel like for like I, I can't think of any better way to say it. You just feel like you're really in good hands with him, and I think I might have said that about Norton. But like you just feel like you're with him. He and you can trust him. Whatever it is he's doing with the character, you you feel like well that's obviously the way to do it. Yeah, and in terms of the material, and one of the reasons I think he was such a good partner for Paul Thomas Anderson is that he had that great kind of deep voice too that kind of led that solidity yeah. Yeah. but it was also a little bit vulnerable and just a little bit like shaky and you could sense yeah. that his characters could be knocked off that solid ledge yeah. if they weren't so forceful and there's the constant need to kind of reassert that and so much of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies are about exploring like the little cracks and confident people who yeah. feel like they know their place in the world yeah absolutely um, so who are who are a few yeah well the other definitive in your opinion definitive auteur actors the other big example I always go to partially because my favorite actor is Cary Grant. Um, there is a so-so movie he made early on called Ladies Should Listen. Um, it's directed by this guy, I think his name is Frank Tuttle, who's not a name you know unless you go see a lot of old movies from the 30s and 40s because he's not a notable director. Um, but the movie derives so much energy from his performance, and you can see, this is 1934, it was before Cary Grant was a star at all, but they were trying to make him one, and you can see Cary Grant like trying to make the most out of every moment and giving a little bit extra than the film needs and you go much earlier in his career and that was sometimes a weakness of his he would go too far in scenes that didn't really need it at all um, but in this movie it's a screwball comedy and he's trying to pick up the energy in a way that the director just isn't clued in enough to try to find um, I think two years later he made a movie called The Wedding Present that has a similar thing and you can tell the director is actually trying to keep up with him that time where it's almost like a um, prequel to His Girl Friday. He's a newspaper editor trying to get his way through a story and trying to win over a woman in so doing. Um, but the energy of the movie is like super fast paced, super high key, and it's all feeding off of him. The rest of the supporting cast is like, you know, doing their best, but they're not kind of attacking the material the way he does. Um, and then by the time you get to like Only Angels Have Wings, where he enters wearing that ridiculous huge hat. And it's like, this is clearly an actor who has found his space and figured out a way to perfectly define it. Um, and from there, he's like off and running. And I think movies like His Girl Friday or Suspicion or Talk of the Town, or especially this movie he made called Crisis that's not very widely known, but is one of his best. And it's a dramatic role, too, where he's not, you know, playing the high key part. He's just uh, completely owning a space and a dramatic purpose. Um, I, th I think all those movies are as much if not more so his than they are the directors yeah and it's he's somebody who obviously when pe people have a very clear idea of who Cary Grant was and it's and it's understandable just like he, he you know exudes class he exudes intelligence um, but you know and in something like Philadelphia story obviously right. that's just what he is but then in like arsenic and old lace uh, and bringing a baby like yeah. he can be like silly yeah. and goofy and like how is how he's able to do that while, st while still completely maintaining his I don't mean to say persona that sounds almost too uh, 
to dismiss Identity. him. I'll say essence, sure. you could say. Yeah. Um, the fact that he's able to do that uh, and you still... I guess this is where I come back over and over again. This idea that you just... It's not so much you feel like, I know what I'm getting, because that also sounds a little reductive, but much like when you see a director, you know, if, if you go to see the French Dispatch, you know what you're getting. Right. And even if it is miles away from Bottle Rocket, there's still a vibe there, and you know that you can count on that vibe. And there's and, a continuum if you followed Wes Anderson's career. Yes. And it's the same for Cary Grant. Like, you can trace an arc to his career and to the way, especially by the 50s, he got kind of reined in by that need to be like a suave gentleman. In in some movies, like... Um, Indiscreet is a perfect example where he's playing love interest to Ingrid Bergman. He's supposed to be like the dream man to her, but he keeps finding ways to like undercut it and be kind of silly. And yeah. You can see he like it's a good movie and he's really good in it, but you can see at some moments that he's just a little bored of playing this type by this point. Mm. It's the late fifties, you know, nearing the end of his career, and then within the couple movies towards the end of his career, he would almost completely break from that and more actively like resist being that suave, romantic, affair to remember kind of guy. I never saw the adaptation of Alice in Wonderland where he plays the I mock turtle. It. Yeah. I'm, I, that bit of casting seems fascinating to me. Yeah, well, that reminds me of some bits in His Girl Friday, or, yeah, His Girl Friday, where he ad-libbed parts based mm. on his own life. So if you're inclined to read auteurism <laughs> um, purely through biographical means, like he references yeah. the mock turtle, he references his true name, Archie Leach, in the movie. Um, so yeah, there's a lot. It's a rich text, as they say. Um, I was also interested in directors who kind of like seem to frequently leave room for this sort of thing. Um, Woody Allen's a pretty good example, if only mm -hmm. because he doesn't seem to care about the casting for most of his movies. Um, <laughs> like some of them are total misses because they cast like completely the wrong person because his casting director is just like, they're hot now, put them in it. And it's like, all right, I guess, uh, I guess Anthony Hopkins wasn't hot by the time they made he were, uh, you will meet a tall, dark stranger, but it's like, how does he fit into Woody Allen's sort of persona here? Um, but the primary example I go to is Owen Wilson in Midnight in Paris, where hmm. uh, Woody Allen talked about in interviews, of course, he was like, yeah, I always had this guy's like a New York nebbishy Jewish guy. And I was like, I wonder why. Uh, <laughs> but then my casting director recommended Woody Allen, or recommended Owen Wilson. And I was like, all right, sure, let's go to shot. And sure enough, like Owen Wilson, like defines the vibe of that movie, which is both like kind of wide eyed wonderment and also like a slight unease about it all, which is like totally Wilson's whole bag. And and there's a pacing to that movie. And admittedly, yeah. there's always kind of a, a la lackadaisical pacing to Woody Allen movies. But it just seemed like you would never think that he would fit in so well. And it's not so much that he fit in well. It, it's partially that. But it's also he did help shape, you know, there, there's a mysticism to that film, obviously. And so you kind of need an entry point. And I would not have thought that Owen Wilson would be such a functional entry point for the audience into this strange idea of of uh, Midnight in Paris. And yeah, I, think he, I mean, he one of my favorite shots that. of the movie is just him, like, staring wide-eyed at this party he's at. Yeah. It's like, that's the movie. That's how you get yeah. the audience in. Um, well, now you're actually getting into some overlap with my way of thinking. Perfect. Because you're getting into... Tyler used the word persona earlier, but, like, comedic persona. I think a lot of comic actors yeah. do this. That yeah. They have, like, Adam Sandler, you know, Will Ferrell, or more recent years, like, Melissa McCarthy or Kristen Wiig. Like, they have the types that they play. Yeah. And they're the kind of... built like, around that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's much more in, in line with what I was thinking. And that goes all the way back to... You were talking about, like, with... Uh, uh, I forget the name of the movie now, but uh, the Frank, Frank Tuttle, like, the guy oh, you don't... Oh, Lady Should Listen. Um... 
the idea of the director just being sort of like functional. Yeah. Like, um, uh, Buster Keaton is when you talk about that, like he's not always the credited director. Yeah. Same with Lloyd. Like Lloyd. Yeah. But like, yeah, they directed this (laughs) (laughs) essentially uh, in terms of an auteur. Yeah. Someone else is going to show up and guide traffic. Yeah. Yeah, Basically. Yeah. And along those lines, as far as the idea of a persona, and I didn't, I didn't want to hit too hard on this because it seems almost too obvious. You get to somebody like, say, a Christopher Walken or a Jeff Goldblum. Sure. And, you know, they can do tremendous things. Like, obviously, Jeff Goldblum in The Fly, in my view, that's like a, an Oscar snub performance. <laughs> like, it was amazing. But then also, I mean, he's so memorable in stuff like Jurassic Park, and I'm a big fan of Adam Resurrected. I think he's doing great yeah. work in there. Um, all without really changing him. No, yeah. Uh, it's just different views of that persona. Yeah, and just he's he is adapting himself, but not to such an extent that he is a journeyman actor by any stretch of the imagination. You know what you are getting with Jeff Goldblum, and you're always excited to see him show up. Yeah, well, I think also the directors are adapting themselves yes. to make that work. But the, uh, I, I wonder, because I, I love Christopher Walken, but there, there also has been a lot of, like, people saying I'm going to cast Christopher Walken because yes. he's going to be weird in this yeah. role, you know, yeah. like nine lives. So we're obviously we're going to put, I don't know if either of you saw nine lives, I did not. I did not. <laughs> obviously like <laughs> he's going to be the crazy pet store owner or whatever, yeah. because, or, or the janitor in Joe dirt, uh, or all these like weird, like comedic roles. He shows up for one scene. Um, is that like this sort of thing, like backfiring <laughs> or is it like uh, another actor I thought of going to older films, but you were talking Scott, you were talking about Daniel Day-Lewis and everyone in the scene just having to react to him. Um, I was thinking of, of all people, Timothy Carey, an actor oh, who was, like, sure. had such a weird energy that like, that's what the scene was about. He if he was in the scene. With it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But is that, is that part of this or is that like the, the underbelly of this? I do wonder if it's an inevitable part of it. Like in the same way that when it was announced that Tim Burton was going to be directing Alice in Wonderland, everyone I know, including me, was like, of course he is. <laughs> and that's it. To me, it's like, it's like, yeah, it's such a no brainer because, hey, he does that weird shit and uh, <laughs> Wonderland is weird. So obviously let's do this. And it's like, hey, we need a, a sort of a goofy type of character uh, and we almost need a shorthand of an actor. So uh, let's cast uh, walk and everyone kind of they kind of get that and uh, just him being on screen is enough of a punchline uh, which is why it's always so wonderful when he shows up in something like Catch Me If You Can and you see him do something he's not doing anything different as far as Cadence and yet it's completely different than what we know him as yeah uh, I never saw that Alice in Wonderland um, you're good you're, okay. you're fine <laughs> I saw his Dumbo which was uh, just so flat it was like where, where, did, yeah. where did Tim Burton go because I liked his uh his like feature length like remake of his own Frankenweenie. I actually mm-hmm. kind of liked that. Uh, yeah, that, that was movie, fine uh, a few years ago. So I was like, all right, maybe he's still got some something in the tank. Uh, but there were, yeah, there were elements was, of Miss Peregrine that I enjoyed, but yeah, it's yeah. But that oh oh dove, dovetailing. Oh, here okay. we go. I know because where we're headed. I, <laughs> I actually really headed. like Miss Peregrine, but it bothers me that Samuel Jackson that movie just decided like I'm not doing the Tim Burton thing. I'm doing the Sam Jackson thing, <laughs> yes, and true. it's like it's fun, but it like. Um, uh, it's it's at odds with the movie. So again, we're getting to like the movie, the possible underbelly of this thing. Yeah, mm. but also I think that movie is not. I think it's weak enough that it 
is enlivened by an actor kind of challenging the material and being like, I need to do something a little different. David, um, you surprised me. I thought you were going uh, Eva Green. I, I, I thought as soon as I said it, I was like, oh yeah, we should talk about Eva Green okay, yeah. and how like, like... She doesn't uh, seem to be able to do a movie good enough to justify how yeah. good her work well, is. 300 Rise of an Empire is 20 times better yeah. than 300, and 18 to 19 of those times <laughs> are yeah. just because Eva Green's in it. And it's not merely, I feel bad saying this, it's not merely because she's a very striking uh, no, actress, but she it's just an brings, energy. There are a lot There's of hot people out there. Yeah. Not, as, not all of them are Eva Green. Yes, that's, yeah. that's true. Yeah, that's a, yeah, Eva Green's a, a great example. Like the, yeah, the very short list of because I'm, su- I'm such a like stodgy film school art auteur theory guy that the, the list of actors that I will be like I'm interested in that movie because that actor's in it is kind of shamefully short for me. Mm-hmm. But Eva Green is Eva Green is definitely on that list. Yeah, I mean I think that idea of like going to see a movie because an actor's in it is kind of at the root of this like so much of the star system is built around the idea that like you said earlier they have certain personas and you build a movie to that persona and really the director is there to adapt themselves to it you know maybe in a special case they can challenge it or um, undercut it or whatever but like for the most part you're surfacing the star um, uh, well I just reminded myself of another example yeah. that I might actually be on your list because I know you're also a big fan Scott but uh, Isabel Huppert is another actress that I will, I will go see a movie yeah, uh, because, because she's in it she defines the movies and there's very few directors who are strong enough to challenge her for that title um, the only one I could really think of was Hong Sang-soo who she's worked with a couple of times and they're he's such a strange he has such a strange way of thinking a strange way of approaching a movie that like almost anything you could do within it could find a way to fit and so the energy she brings to it is perfect for it i mean it, it's fitting that in one of the movies she played three different roles because that's the kind of energy you need to bring to meet Hubert. i mean i think even a movie like l which matches her energy uh narratively i think she even overpowers for hoven in that yeah um, I would agree. as striking as his choices are did nothing compared to what she's doing in that movie yeah i would agree so i'm trying to think of of that test of like actors that i will see a movie be- simply because they're in it it's i can't I mean, even my favorite actor, Robert Duvall, like he's been in enough shit. And even though his scenes are always quality, yeah, uh, my my go to is always the Sixth Day. Um, his scenes are for a mo- for that movie revelatory. Yeah. Um, and yet there are mo- movies that he's in that I. I wonder that how I many of our listeners seen. even remember what the Sixth Day. Is. <laughs> oh yeah, you're. It's you know, it's uh, you're fine to to have forgotten it it's if you ever Arnold Schwarzenegger knew. cloning. Yeah like somewhat I guess action sci-fi movie I feel like it doesn't qualify <laughs> for yeah, action is like yeah uh, high price because it's a pretty dull movie yeah um, but uh, but yeah so I, I can't even really think of anybody that if they're in it I know I'm gonna see it but I do know that if they're in it it gets my attention more right and I sure. know I know one of them is someone that you I don't remember if you mentioned him in this regard but Willem Dafoe is he's always on my list for this as well. I mean, and especially in, increasingly, like he's in he's too many a, movies to possibly see all that, of them. Maybe that's it. Yeah, yeah. but uh, like I feel like I had this moment where I was just like, man, he's had a good, he's had a, a good five year run. Wait, hang on, maybe a ten year. Wait, yeah. hang on, twenty. Motherfucker, it's his whole <laughs> career. Well, also like, he's, he's always been so fascinating. To go back to something you guys were talking about earlier, the like actor director pairings, he's clearly like found a kindred spirit in Abel Ferrara. And yeah, he yeah. Keeps making movies with Abel Ferrara. Yeah. Well, I talked about this on our year end episode <coughs> last year of Tommaso, where like 
I don't know if I'm completely on board with what Ferrar is laying down, but I'm definitely on board with what Defoe's doing in that movie, which is certainly like defining the space as much as Ferrar was. Uh, and yeah, that seems, I don't know how much of Tommaso's story is autobiographical, like you were talking about, but it does like knowing what I know about the making of that movie, like Willem Defoe, like came up with a lot of that character. Yeah. But also, I, mean, I, like, I know it's also kind of based on Will Ferrar. At the same yeah. time. It's like, it's like this mix. That's what I was going to say. A lot of the facts of the movie, like it's a film director, I think, or at least a film creative guy. Yeah. Cause he's prepping into the movie that ended up being Ferrar's next movie. Um, <laughs> well, and, uh, Paul Schrader as well. He's worked yeah, totally. quite a bit with, with Paul Schrader. Uh, mm. first, you know, when Schrader wrote last temptation of Christ, but also like, light sleeper and affliction and yeah. autofocus and, um, Adam resurrected. And I feel like there might be one or two others in there that I'm not remembering, but, um, but yeah, like he, and, and he's been in a, in a couple Wes Anderson things as well. Like clearly, I don't know. Does that mean that he's very adaptable as, as an actor? I think he is. And that's, I mean, he's increasingly become one of my favorite actors for this reason is yeah. that he can like be the virtual auteur of the movie. Like he is with Ferrara or certain Paul Schrader movies or more recently at heaven's gate. Um, which I did think was a very strong movie, but he certainly deserved the Oscar nomination. Yeah. Wait at eternity's gate. Yes. Yeah. I wrote that down wrong. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but at the same time, he'll take like total like working actor jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I mean, the French Dispatch has 8 million people in it and he's in it for all of like five minutes. Anyone could have played that role, but it's cool that he just showed up and did yeah. it. But he's also in like Aquaman. <laughs> like, yeah, Willem right. Dafoe doesn't need Aquaman, but he's just like, all right, sure. I'll do Aquaman. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There was, um, uh, I can't remember what I was going to say, but, um, uh, he's, he's got the thing you were talking about with certain other actors where he's like, he's clearly got a lot of range, you, you know, the, uh, the fucking like detective from Boondock Saints and <laughs> and the detective from American Psycho sure. might both be detectives, but they're like on yeah. opposite sides yeah. of the universe. But there's still him in it. I yeah. Guess. And then when you realize like he he was in the lighthouse like the year after he was in yeah. Florida Project, and they're just those characters couldn't be more different. But there is there is I th- I think there's a tremendous humanity to his performances always, even even when he's playing you know. Max Shrek playing uh, Count Orlock, uh, even when he's playing sort of these monstrous uh, type characters, there is just something, it's not even necessarily a vulnerability. I think that can be there, but I don't think it's always necessary. That's not the name I would give it. So all I can say is, is humanity. You always feel like you're watching a fully fleshed out flesh and blood person. Yeah. I mean, speaking of Paul Schrader, um, dog eat dog, which like nobody saw. I only saw it a couple weeks ago. Um, hmm. but he plays a guy in that who in most movies, they would just make the pure punchline. Cause he's the dumbest guy in the movie where they're doing heists and they're doing heist poorly. So he's off in the punching bag of many scenes, but because Willem Dafoe can't help but like dig in and bring so much humanity. He's also like so sad throughout the whole movie. Hmm. Um, and like you like laugh at him, but you're kind of uncomfortable because you because Defoe's performance is so good that you're like, oh, this is a real guy who has to live with being this fucked up. Yeah, and I, 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 I increasingly, and I can't even come up with any examples except uh, I, I know it when I see it, like anytime like a character is is dumb and they know they're dumb, it's like oh yeah, that's that that just the worst. Gets me. Um, but yeah, even uh, a most wanted man, which is a movie that I really love. Sure. His character 
it's a notable character, a supporting role, but it's a notable character, and it would be so. There's it, the character could be seen as very surfacey, but he imbues that character with so much that in this film with a with a stellar cast, he's not necessarily. I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman is leading the the charge there, but I just keep going back to Willem Dafoe as this guy who is well to do. He might be like you get hints that he's not in a happy marriage, but he but like his dad or his grandfather were not uh, were a little shady and he clearly feels a great deal of guilt over that and he's so bad so badly trying to like to justify his own life knowing where it has come from even though he had nothing to do with it uh and just like how is this ca- i mean he's written he's written well but right. like he it, it goes back to this idea it's like it's a, it's a it's not Aquaman certainly, but uh, it is a situation where it's like he sees something in a character that I think any number of other actors have been like, yeah, I got it. Yeah, he goes, no, I don't think I got it. I think there is something to this guy, and I'm going to find it. Yeah, I think he's a tremendously curious actor. Yeah, and that really comes. I mean, in the movies where he's given more space to worry, that really comes to define the movies. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I have another, I. I Intentionally didn't bring this guy up earlier. Okay. But then, Scott, you invoked a canceled name with Woody Allen. So I'm going to say, fuck it, I'm going to go with a canceled guy too. Uh, And that's Shia LaBeouf. Sure. Um, Like, he clearly has, or had, I don't know if he'll ever work again. Um, But uh, clearly had, like, a a goal and things that he wanted to uh, uh, work out about himself. And this is going to sound like I'm, like, almost apologizing for him maybe in a way which I'm which I'm not but it does seem like he is often aware of his own like toxic masculine impulses and seems to be picking roles that like um either either challenge them or um sort of lay them bare I don't know if you uh if anyone besides me uh, suffered through uh, pieces of a woman last year <laughs> but um I did it's not a great movie but uh and it kind of got intentionally buried I think by Netflix because like the revelations about the accusations sure, yeah. against Shia LaBeouf came out and they were like let's pretend Shia LaBeouf isn't in this movie <laughs> or whatever but um, like there he like uh, starts off as like a supportive husband but he's like clearly unhappy he's got things like chipping away at him about her mom or whatever and then when the things happen that happen in, in the movie he um, you see him sort of just like devolve into a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I, and I, and I wonder if that's a certain self-awareness on Shia LaBeouf's part that like I'm the, he's, he's got these, these bad impulses. Yeah. I mean, I think it even goes back earlier. Like, um, he obviously took the idea of the Transformers franchise as purely like a money move. He's talked about it in interviews, um, where he was like, I saw Elijah Wood do the Lord of the Rings and he could do anything after. So I'm going to do a big movie and I can do anything <laughs> after. But by the third one, either he didn't care about that enough anymore or the studio didn't care enough anymore either way where he's definitely playing into everything that's unlikable about that character um to the point that like i kind of point to it as a great portrait of like um post-recession millennial angst where it's like he's pissed off that he saved the world and no one's given enough credit which is like how a lot of us felt where like we felt like we should come into the world on top of the world and everyone you know the world does us everything but like <laughs> he's just constantly getting shit on throughout the entire movie and there's so many scenes that play into how big an ass he is just for believing he should be the center of attention um 
uh, and then in uh, in Honey Boy, which he he wrote, yeah, mm-hmm. Honey Boy, uh, Lucas Hedges' character, who is him, yeah, is also like. Often very unlikable, you know, when he's yeah. being, when he's like drunk and being arrested and his argument is like, do you have any idea how good I am at what I do? Yeah. I always remember that line. It's such a good line. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Cause I didn't see Honey Boy. I wanted to, I was curious. It's about really it. good. Uh, yeah, I had, I had heard that. Um, so, you know, I think the nature of the auteur theory, whether it be filmmakers or, or actors is that it's very easy to to say like when you're when you're analyzing somebody as an auteur i think it's very easy to mistake the academic interest for uh quality sure. uh and so you know whether whatever like even even bad filmmakers can be auteurs and similarly i wanted to bring up an actor who i i definitely have liked in certain roles but there is definitely a through line okay. through his, his films and his performances, and he's also a canceled actor, and that's Kevin Spacey. Sure. Um, there is such an inherent theatricality yeah. to his style, and he finds theatricality within his characters. Uh, like, they, whether it be sometimes it's very obvious, like they're, like, you know, playing, was it Bobby Darren? And, yeah. uh, you know. But also something like somebody like Jack Vincennes from yeah, uh, L.A. Confidential, Lester Burnham, who clearly is like taking pleasure and getting getting like co- gaining confidence or cockiness, whatever you want to say, from performing for his wife, for yeah. whoever it is, uh, how different he is as a person now and how enlightened he is. And I feel like that's something that. Uh, even when he, even in Glengarry Glen Ross, when you have such bigger characters like Al Pacino, like Alec Baldwin, uh, even the way uh, the character Williamson, when he like he gets shit on by these guys so much that like when so when he has a point to make and he knows he's in the right, he presents it in a very performative way. Like, they just like talking to salesmen. Like, he says it like that. Yeah, like, yeah. He says it like it's a line he's been practicing for so long. And there are times when it, it bothers me. Sure. There are other times when it feels 100% right. I do think LA Confidential, I think that is the way to play that character. Yeah, well, and it's right for, I mean, I don't like House of Cards, but it is right for House of Cards. Sure. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Do you, I wonder now, <laughs> I mean, I, I hate over. I hate using the word canceled like it's real. I know it's like a, I don't know, it's a hashtag or whatever. But yeah. like, I wonder if there is some commonality between like these strong personalities who get a lot of positive reinforcement and then like lose their inhibitions and either act or allegedly act uh, poorly towards others. I wonder if there is. I mean, I have to assume there's probably. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say there's a 100 percent chance you're right. <laughs> but I mean, there's plenty of examples. Now, I mean, one of the people I have on my list is, uh, as far as I know, fairly well behaved. Denzel Washington, who like yeah, all of his movies, he really defines the feeling of those movies. They're defined by the tenor of his voice, by the ter- determination of his performance, by. Yeah. Um, you know, some could argue the stubbornness of his characters, but like the single mindedness with which he approaches the roles really brings about the feeling of those movies. Well, um, I don't know if he's a nice guy. He did get into a shouting match with Ellen Pompeo on the set of Grey's Anatomy, That's which right. to me, I'm on his side. I think <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, 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 yeah. I'm on his side in that case, but I always felt bad for Ellen Pompeo because I really liked her early on in her career. And then she just got, totally shunted off into network TV land. 
Um, but I read the most interesting article about her where she like, once she recognized that that's where she's destined, she completely made it her space and like made sure she got super rich off it, made sure she was making the creative choice on that show. I was like, yeah, good for you on Pompeo. Uh, there was an embarrassing, uh, an embarrassing entertainment, entertainment weekly interview years ago that was it was like about Shondaland so it was like Shonda Rhimes Viola Davis Kerry Washington and Ellen Pompeo (laughs) obviously there's one thing about her that stands out from the other three and she is like (laughs) trying so hard in like a cringy way to be like down in the like in the interview and like so it's it's always kind of rubbed me the wrong way and then on top of that you're gonna yell at Denzel Washington the director of the episode for directing you apparently (laughs) Uh, but maybe that's her being the just like I I guess when you're number one on the call sheet on a show that's been on for 15 fucking years you'd think you deserve to call some shots and don't want to get told what to do it's 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 tough because like, you know, uh, film is a director's medium. Television is a showrunner's medium. And barring that, the star's medium in a yeah. way like, hey, Denzel Washington, you're going to go and do whatever you're going to do. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to keep going. So like not even I, the cameraman changes for most shows. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, well, um, which probably. Yeah, yeah. Towards wrapping up. But there's two uh, big ones to me that I don't know if this fits Scott's definition. Okay, I have a couple more I want to bring up too. Okay, well, the, the, the two that I want to talk about, because these are guys who have a reputation and have the star power to take control of their movies and that's will smith and tom cruise sure like those i I don't know if that counts fits your definition that's more of like a producer type thing but they clearly like they handpick their directors they sign off on right on 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 everything yeah so i'm I'm glad you brought up cruise because one i love tom cruise so i'm always happy to talk about tom cruise um but also because i think he's a good example of someone who in the way that i'm seeing this topic like Yes, you're right. In terms of, like, production, he's definitely, like, as in charge as anyone. But in terms of the way the movies view him, I think it varies. So something like Mission Impossible 3 or Ghost Protocol or Vanilla Sky or Minority Report, I think, like, he's driving the feeling of those movies. And they're very much expressions of himself or his persona or whatever you want to, his essence, if you want to call it that. But then there's stuff like Magnolia, Jerry Maguire, certainly Eyes Wide Shut, where he's like the subject of the movie and the director's like studying him mm-hmm. and that for however much power he has in Hollywood or over the set or whatever, I couldn't say for sure. In any given case, I think maybe in the cases of like an eyes wide shut, you know, you're probably deferring to Kubrick for the most part, but all those directors are interested in what makes him interesting on screen and whatever he's giving to the movie, it, the director's always like, cutting around the corner to be like, eh, how do we feel about that? <laughs> yeah. And there's always a slight remove where you're like, you're not sure if this guy's right or this guy's, um, in charge certainly, or yeah, there's just a slight study, I guess, of his star persona. And I think what made him such an interesting actor through the nineties and early two thousands is he was willing to give himself over to that so often. Yeah. And he was okay with giving up like that certainty and that power. And I still, I know we talked about it on a episode a while back. I know you, Scott, liked Ford v. Ferrari. But I just think about the version that was in development with Tom Cruise in the Christian Bale role and Brad Pitt in the uh, uh, Matt Damon role. Yeah, Matt Damon role. 
I would love to. I, I love Christian Bale, but I would have loved to see Tom I mean, Cruise yeah, play that part. They're both more interesting. Like, I also love Christian Bale and Matt Damon, but there's no question that Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise together are going to be a more interesting combination. And also, the title of that movie was, at least in pre-production, not Ford v. Ferrari. It was Go Like Hell, which is a much better title. A ten times better Indeed. title than well, Ford v. Ferrari. Ford v. Ferrari, they didn't even release that overseas, so they knew. Right, yeah. Um, uh, but I got myself, because I mentioned Will Smith, who I think is, like, yeah. famous for a lot of things, obviously. One thing, he's famous for at least two times like turning down roles that ended up being huge movies. Yeah. The Matrix is the big one, but also Django. I think yeah. he didn't want to hit right. I don't think he could bend to, uh, to Tarantino, which is uh, probably the right move. I don't know that he would have, uh, the movie would have been the same with, with his, uh, I think it would have been so much better. Um, I, but I'm really interested to see what it would have looked like to have like, I mean, obviously Tarantino has worked with very big stars, but a star who's like, I, I think I'm going to be a little bit resistant. It's like, Oh good. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Use that. Yeah. I feel like it fits the character. He's just but, so much more striking than Jamie Foxx has ever been. And it, I, I always felt like the movie was missing a center because Jamie Foxx just isn't uh-huh. compelling enough. I disagree. I love I love that movie, but uh, it got so. I was thinking about the Matrix, and I was thinking I can't remember which one of you before said like an actor can like go along being an actor, and then a director can like unwa- uh, like awaken right, the yeah. auteur in them. Was is Keanu Reeves an auteurist actor? And if so, was he before the Matrix, or did the Bachowskis kind of turn him into an auteur? You know what? Oh, no, I, I didn't have a answer. I think when the Matrix came along. I think Keanu Reeves felt he no longer had anything to prove and just was more comfortable being himself up until then. Like, yeah, he, he was, he did very Keanu Reeves type things like speed, like point break, Bill and Ted, but also like he's doing Dracula. He's doing Shakespeare. He's doing all this kind of stuff that fits with like this leading man persona, but doesn't, some of it just doesn't feel like it's like, Oh, he's, he doesn't fit here. I understand why he would do it, but he doesn't fit. After the Matrix, I don't think I ever got that feeling. Yeah, yeah. even in something that would seem like against type, like maybe like something's got to give. Yeah, he's he's good in that. Yeah, movie. he. You can see a shift in confidence uh, in him, where like I think he just. Keanu. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think that's a hundred percent right. Well, who else is on your list, Scott? Um, well, I, I would be remiss without bringing up uh, Kirsten Dunst, one of my very favorite actresses, who I I think is always more interesting when a director is giving themselves over to her. Like I I I like Melancholia and. I understand why most people think it's her best work, but I think she's trying to play to Lars von Trier more than he's playing to her. And I don't think it's a more interesting performance or does the most more interesting movie than um, something like Marie Antoinette or um, Bachelorette or Woodshock, where she's like completely defining the feeling of those movies. Um, you know, as much as I like Lars von Trier, I can't, I can't love the movie or I can't love Lars Frontier as much as I love Kirsten Dunst. And so like, to me, what's exciting about a Kirsten Dunst movie is what she's giving off and what she's contributing to it. And, and even, you know, uh, even like a great ensemble, like the beguiled, I feel like she yeah. is like the heart of that. movie. Well, yeah, the virgin um, suicides too, yeah. where it's like yeah. every second of that movie, even she's a supporting character in most regards, but like the movie is very much following her and defined around her. Mm. Do you know that, um, apparently I love the beguiled, um, Apparently, Sofia Coppola asked Kirsten Dunst to lose weight yeah. for that role, and Kirsten Dunst said nope. <laughs> yeah, she's like, I'm in the South. I'm eating chicken. <laughs> yeah. Forget it. <laughs> so good. Yeah. 
Um, who else did I definitely want to mention? We got the cruise. Um, <laughs> well, Jack Nicholson too. I mean, sure. In terms of people who have completely defined a space and who you know have sometimes gotten, I think, unavailable. Uh, un- unfairly assailed for it Mm -hmm. um but i mean especially the early stuff like five easy pieces with the passenger where it's just like this is a guy who knows who he is and knows what he wants to say through himself in a movie yeah um there's in the wtf episode with jeff daniels he talked about working with jack in um terms of endearment Endearment. yeah and the advice Jack gave was like, you just got to know what the muscles on your face do, <laughs> which and is boy, like, he perf- knows what the muscles perfect on Jack Nicholson advice. Yeah, yeah. completely. Yeah. Yeah. So that even when it, it seems like he's losing control, it's like, no, this guy knows exactly what he's doing at every moment. Yeah. And it's, he's one of my favorite actors. He's always, I mean, he's just, he's just magnetic to watch no matter what he's in. Uh, and no matter what he's doing, because reg- despite what people, some people say, he's not always only playing no. himself, uh, whether it be like Ironweed or about Schmidt or Hoffa, like he is doing different things from time to time. He does like a Cary Grant. He does have his, his persona yeah. and he is often playing that. However, I hate when people say, Oh, they're just playing themselves. It's like, first off, let just, I'm going to stipulate that. Yes. Let's say he's doing that. Do you guys know how fucking hard that is? <laughs> like that's extremely like an accent. And also, how of, well do you know Jack? Yeah, yeah exactly. That's true. Yeah. And it also takes a while to find that. Like, yeah, it was definitely true of Cary Grant. He watched like early John Wayne movies where he doesn't have the John Wayne voice first off. Mm-hmm. And he's way less confident. Like every screen persona that you see, takes a lot of time to hone and figure out and define. Yeah. Yeah, and certainly as somebody as somebody gets older, actor or not, like they're just going to become more themselves, yeah. and you just can't help that. Uh, and yeah, with with Nicholson, I feel like he found it pretty early. I mean, certainly you don't get a lot of the Nicholson we think of from you know in Easy Rider, but you get to I mean the next year uh, or is it two yeah the next year in five easy pieces yeah. like you it's like there he is yeah for sure him. i mean but he was also pounding it out in roger corman movies of for course, like 10 of years course. prior yeah um you watch the raven which is a terrible movie mm-hmm. where he's playing like peter laurie's assistant or something yeah and it's like he could be anybody yeah it's uh but no he's somebody who i remember um it's always so much fun for me to like go back and watch Siskel and old episodes of Siskel and Ebert where, you know, they're talking about stuff in the moment that we have, have, you know, uh, canonized since then, or at least intellectualized. Yeah. Uh, and they're reacting in the moment. And for them, like they would just, they were so over the moon about everything Jack Nicholson did. He was just such a vibrant, watchable actor. So like hearing them talk about him and, terms of endearment and they're just like laughing about his choices of being like his comedic choices being like like and and even with uh pritzy's honor there's a scene they showed a scene uh with him uh, acting opposite to uh, kathleen turner and he's not even like his back is to the camera and they're like he's the only actor i can think of that can still be funny with his back (laughs) to the camera yeah uh yeah he was just uh it's it's unfortunate that he's you know essentially retired at this point um because i'm sure he could still be doing great stuff yeah i mean but at the same time now that we're 10 years from the last Jack Nicholson performance. Now, finally people are like, Oh, I do miss Jack. It's like, yeah. yeah. He didn't know how good you had it. <laughs> yeah. Just watching him play himself all yeah. the time. There was a time when Jack Nicholson and like a Gene Hagman or, yeah. or whatever, like there was a time when they were in movies like every other year. Yeah. And it was great. What a wonderful time. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, a few more just one-off examples real quick. Um, I think Rock Hudson in Seconds is a really good example of this as well, where like there are a lot of leading men you could put in that role, but they wouldn't be, the movie wouldn't be half of what it is without Rock Hudson's particular like mix of extreme good looks, uh, crippling uncertainty, and willingness to uh, throw his star persona to the wind with that. Um, and the fact that he had the star persona built up by that point where like you could maybe cast a younger good uh, good looking actor who like is less experienced but doesn't have like the magnetism that Rock Hudson had built by the mid 60s um, Juliette Binoche just in general but especially in Let the Sunshine In um, it's a Claire Denis movie but it's really to me a Binoche movie where she's defining the movements of that the whole emotional tenor of it and, and she might be on my list of oh, yeah. people I'll see because I'll see she's anything in the movie. yeah 100% um what are some other ones? She was in the 2014 Godzilla. Did you guys see that? No, I didn't see I that. I saw it. <laughs> yeah. She's not in it long enough. That's for She's sure. not in as it. As soon as she enough, exits, yeah. which is a firm exit, you're like, ah, yeah. crap. But apparently, like, didn't she, like, take yeah. that role as preparation for Clouds of Silver, <laughs> right, where yeah. she's yeah. playing an actress who has been in, like, an X-Men type movie? Right. She's like, well, I've never been in one of these big, like, Hollywood movies put me in anyone I don't care Gareth Edwards must have felt so lucky Um, also Warren Beatty in Shampoo I mean Warren Beatty in general I think he was a really smart producer who knew what he could do on screen and knew how to undercut himself but I think especially Shampoo really gets at like uh, exploring his persona in a really active way and I think he's willing to give himself over that um this is a movie that not many people have seen, but I got to just shout out Julie Garland in I Could Go On Singing, which is like her last hey, performance. I I've think. seen that. You have? Yeah. Oh. I think we talked about it because we both. Uh, Fantastic. We both uh, got that Blu-ray cheap when. Uh, Hell yeah. When Twilight Time went under. Yeah. Um, but that's a movie that's practically like it's not even like hiding how much it's about her and which she is willing to make it about her and willing to open herself up in ways that actors of her star persona would take like a vehicle like that and just like shrug it off well i'm gonna i'm gonna steal your observation because i can't remember who was on the air or not but the judy garland biopic judy yeah. is almost like a remake of i yeah. could go on singing it's <laughs> to so the point that to... like their hotel room looks the same which yeah. is weird <laughs> um but yeah there's a part in i could go on singing where she's giving this like incredible monologue that apparently wasn't written she just came up with it on set and everyone on set including her scene partner were just smart enough to just like be like, okay, we're going with this. We're just going to live with it. And they couldn't get another take because that was all she had. Right. Uh, that's interesting um, along these lines. And I don't want to, I know we do need to wrap up, but like there are, especially as, as an actor gets older, there are occasional movies where it would seem to be in its own way, autobiographical yeah. uh, or at the very least they're reflecting on where they are right now. So I think of something like Venus sure. uh, with Peter O'Toole, where he plays an aging actor uh, who used to be like so young and da- and dashing and, and a younger generation doesn't really understand that. Um, and it just is him sort of questioning that. And it's just like, yes, I suppose any, I suppose any number of like older, really respectable British actors could have played that role. But like on paper, but I think he makes it so much his own Yeah, in a way that somebody like a Michael Caine or, or somebody else that's sort of on that level, uh, they would have done their own thing with it. But I think they, he made it so indelibly and unapologetically him, uh, that I like it's, it's a Roger Michelle film. Like he's, he's not, uh, he's, he's no slouch as a director, but that is like, 
That is Peter O'Toole's movie. Yeah. Oh, uh, he was. Pardon me. Yes, yes. I'm sorry. I forgot. Um, also, more recently, Kristen Stewart in Personal Shopper, which, I mean, I, I love Personal Shopper, and I adore Olivier Assayas, but he's never had a movie feel exactly that way because Kristen Stewart's whole sense of being, like, out of place and the nervous energy she was bringing to someone say too many roles at that time, but I would disagree, um, is really, like, it, it creates a feeling that you couldn't get otherwise. And Isaiah said he'd made the movie essentially because of her, because he worked with her on Clouds of Silsbury and felt like she could do this kind of thing. Um, and then I, I, I wrote this down, so I'll bring it up. It's probably the most controversial choice in this regard, but Jeff oh. Bridges in The Big Lebowski. Um, I think there's a reason why... I understand the criticism that the Coen brothers like look down on their characters and like judge them, but they can't quite judge the dude. No. <laughs> and there's a sense in which the movie <laughs> keeps trying to, but can't quite conquer him. And I think that's Bridges pushing back and figuring out a way to best the Coens at their own game. Huh. That's interesting. I don't think of them as being particularly... Well, you know what? I don't see them as being judgmental of every character in a movie. Sure. Uh, there's, you know, there's usually like two or three. They're like, I'm on board with this, this guy or, 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 or girl. Um, but no, I, I, I don't see them as, as trying to be judgmental of the dude. I think they're judgmental of Walter. Uh, but I think the dude, they have a tremendous amount of sympathy for. If anything, I think they're envious of him and wish they could <laughs> be more like him. Maybe that's also part of the energy. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was fun. Gervy. We, we, we finally got this one on the books mm-hmm. Hell yeah. uh, and in the can. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at BattleshipRetention.com. You can email us at David at BattleshipRetention.com or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at DavyPretension. You can also check out my other podcast. It's called The One Where I Met Your Mother. Uh, this week, we, uh, talk, we, we every, every week we watch uh, Friends and How I Met Your Mother, and we sort of talk and compare and contrast and uh, have fun this week. Uh, Monica gets her identity, identity stolen. It's and, about time, uh, I say. <laughs> and on How I Met Your Mother, uh, Lily's got cold feet about her upcoming wedding. So hear us talk about that on The One Where I Met Your Mother. You can follow Tyler on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Uh, Tyler, what do you have to plug? Nothing, what? right? You got nothing new this week? <laughs> you know what? Nothing worth talking about. Uh, no, I, uh, by the time you're hearing this, there will be a review of, uh, the Chloe Zhao film Eternals, the new Marvel movie. That'll be a battleship. That's the new Kumail Nanjiani movie, right? That's like kind you of know, the only thing I you know, know about what? it. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> uh, I don't want to spoil my review, but yes. Um, but, uh, and then yes, obviously there's my, my documentary Valley of the Shadow, the spiritual value of horror, which you can find on the rediscover television streaming platform, but you can also, uh, rent it, uh, on, uh, Vimeo on demand. Uh, I will make sure to, to do a post yeah, uh, for do. that at yeah. battleship So you don't have to go searching for it. Um, but yeah, I'm fairly proud of it. And, uh, if anything else, I'm, I like, you know what? I, I really like everybody else's contribution to it. Yeah. Uh, well, for so. a person as self-critical as you to be fairly proud of something you've done <laughs> speaks a lot. I'm, I'm genuinely proud of Real Redemption. Oh, I'm okay. fairly proud <laughs> of this one. <laughs> Way to promote the new one, man. I can, you know what? I'm, I'm really bad at, at <laughs> self-promotion in some ways. Uh, Scott, where can people find you uh, on the internet? First question. Did you guys watch Space Goes Coast to Coast much? Oh, my, yes. Because every time someone says my documentary, 
I think of. Oh uh, yes, my documentary. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what is about it? Na- nature's best friends yeah. <laughs> about sharks and bears being yeah. best friends. Ah <laughs> uh, yes, my documentary. Every time. Yes. Um, yeah, I'll be covering AFI Fest soon uh, alongside David. We should hash out what we're seeing so we know who's writing about what. I think you uh, guys we always see all the that. same movies. Yeah, but yeah, we you, might be because it's a fairly brief schedule this mm, year. Yeah, but I mean, basically what I always do, this is an off-mic conversation, but I usually just ask you because I think you, this is the festival where you have pride of place. Yeah. So I basically just ask you, what do you plan on, re- on reviewing? And then I just Fair review enough. the other stuff I see. Um, the fun part about this year is we forgot to apply for press credentials, so we're off-roading it. <laughs> yeah. We don't have to say presented by Audi. We don't have which to. Which we never did without making fun of it. Anyway, without at least certainly without making fun of it, and yeah. uh, no kowtowing to the festival this year. So we'll <laughs> see see if they can take it. I love your ongoing blood feud. With <laughs> AFI. Oh AFI man, Fest. it gets worse every year. <laughs> the blood feud, anyway. The fest, you know, goes up and down. All right. Well, uh, thank you for being here, Scott. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 